Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'm Ryan Grimm, and welcome back to another episode of Deconstructed. So as I think I've mentioned on this show before, about a year and a half ago, I started doing some guest hosting over at Hill TV's show called Rising, which has one right-wing co-host and one left-wing co-host, and they don't so much as argue and yell at each other like CNN's Crossfire used to do, but instead they sort of present the news of the day and each kind of give their sides of it, probe the other person's views, ask some questions of them, and then they move on to the next segment really like the format, actually, and it's helped me get a better understanding of today's right. And I hope I've been able to persuade some people in the audience my way. Now, in May of 2021, I started co-hosting every day. And this May, I moved to hosting only on Fridays, along with my conservative co-host, Emily Jashinsky, an editor over at The Federalist. Now, I'm still doing that, but now I'm over at the YouTube channel, Breaking Points, still with Emily. Back at Rising, one of the left-wing co-hosts they've been bringing on is Katie Halper, an independent journalist and podcaster. But last week, she planned to make her daily monologue a response to these remarks by Representative Rashida Tlaib, which had caused a stir inside the Democratic Party. This past year, you all, Amnesty International and the UN joined Human Rights Watch and Beit Salem come out with the same conclusion that many Palestinians and their allies have long known for decades that Israel is an apartheid state that is systematically, through laws and actions, privileges one group over the other and doesn't value all human life equally. I want you all to know that among progressives, it has become clear that you cannot claim to hold progressive values, yet back Israel's apartheid government, and we will continue to push back and not accept this idea that you are progressive, progressive except for Palestine any longer. Anti-Defamation League CEO Jonathan Greenblatt picked up on the comments and he slammed Tlaib, saying on Twitter, quote, In one sentence, Representative Rashida Tlaib simultaneously tells American Jews that they need to pass an anti-Zionist litmus test to participate in progressive spaces, even as she doubles down on her anti-Semitism by slandering Israel as an apartheid state. It's absolutely reprehensible and does nothing to advance the cause of peace. We call on people of goodwill and leaders across the political spectrum to make clear that such anti-Semitism will not be tolerated. Jake Tapper picked up on the story over at CNN. Democratic Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib of Michigan facing criticism today from what several of her Jewish colleagues have deemed anti-Semitic comments. Florida Congresswoman Debbie Wasserman Schultz called her comments, quote, outrageous and, quote, nothing short of anti-Semitic. New York Democratic Congressman Jerry Nadler, sometimes called the Dean, of the informal House Jewish Caucus tweeted, quote, I fundamentally reject the notion that one cannot support Israel's right to exist as a Jewish and democratic state and be a progressive, unquote. So the monologues at Rising are called radars, and I recorded more than 170 of them while I was there. And the process is simple. You write the thing, it gets loaded into the teleprompter, you read it and record it in the studio, and it gets posted along with the show. Except on this day, that's not how it went for Katie Halper, as I reported earlier for The Intercept. So joining me to tell this story is Katie Halper herself. Katie, as an independent journalist, you wear a bunch of different hats. 
Can you tell us about your variety of different affiliations so people can find your stuff? Sure, yeah. Uh, so I host the Katie Halper Show on YouTube, uh, youtube.com slash the Katie Halper Show. It's also a podcast. It's a live stream. And I also co-host Useful Idiots, which is also a podcast and live stream. What else? I've written for a bunch of places, although I've been focusing more on the podcast. But I have written for The Nation and The Guardian and New York Magazine. Fair. Do a lot of stuff on media coverage at Fair. Also Jacobin, full disclosure, I should say that I've written for Jacobin. And I also made a movie called Commie Camp, which I'm releasing soon, uh, which is, yeah. Well, great. Uh, and the, the, the Jacobin disclosure is important because we're also joined here by uh, Bronco Marchatich of Jacobin Magazine, who also covered this controversy this week. Uh, welcome, Bronco. Hey, thanks for having me. And so, so Katie, s start us out at the beginning here. So you, you're, you, you're guest hosting in the studio. You record your monologue. Uh, after the monologues, there's al always a back and forth. It's never, it's never just a straight, this is my opinion, and then you cut. You know the the co the co-host on the other side argues back and forth, and then then you move on to the next right. segment. So after that, what happened? So I went. I I uh, I should also say that I just so people get a sense of my relationship with the Hill. I've been a weekly contributor for like three years. So started with Crystal and Sagar, and then started up again where during the new iteration of the Hill, which you were part of, Ryan. Mm -hmm. So I would go on there every week for three for three years. And then, as you said, I was doing some guest hosting. And so I, you know, hosted a bunch of segments that day. Then uh, during the, you know, I also did, delivered that monologue. A couple of segments after that monologue, the producers asked us to record like what's called a pickup. And basically that meant that uh, Robbie, the, the, you know, the right wing co-host kind of reiterated what Jonathan Greenblatt had said which I was like, okay, that's somewhat weird. I don't know, because I'm not, I haven't hosted that many times, but it seemed a little weird. It kind of tipped me off to maybe there was some discussion about my radar, about my monologue. Right, because that's not normal. Like normally it's it's done, it's done. But yeah. if you need to add a little comment in, it's not- Sure, yeah, I didn't seem terribly like- Terribly unusual, right. like, okay, let's get a little extra balance yeah. in there, fine, okay. So they had it like Jonathan Greenblatt- uh, they repeated what he had said, which Jake Tapper had already said, and then they added in something from him where he said, like, uh, you know, Amnesty International is anti-Semitic or something. And I, I once again, I, maybe I shouldn't, shouldn't have, but I was like, well, he can call it Amnesty International anti-Semitic, but I don't know how he's going to explain away, uh, you know, a bunch of Israeli prime ministers and the Israeli human rights organization, B'Tselem, which has also declared Israel to be an apartheid state. But, you know, if they had said, like, Katie, we're going to cut that part out, that would have been fine. Like, I wasn't I wasn't trying to be a bomb thrower. Right. And and so so to back up uh, and, and we'll play at the end of this episode, your full radar so people can hear it for themselves. But yeah. give, give us a, a basic kind of rundown of of what the of what point you were trying to make. Sure. Yeah. So the point I was trying to make was that uh, Rashida Tlaib was being smeared. And uh, Jake Tapper, I thought, was doing a kind of who, by the way, I mean, there's interesting backstory. Jake Tapper has gone after Rashida Tlaib in the past. This is not his first time kind of insinuating that she's an anti-Semite. Um, in fact, his coverage of her and of Palestine prompted Jewish Voices for Peace to launch a cancel Jake Tapper hashtag. And they even did a protest outside of uh, CNN. But anyway, I, I responded to that clip. I played that clip which quoted Debbie Wasserman Schultz saying this is outrageous. And then my follow-up was like, yeah, it is outrageous. It's outrageous that Rashida Tlaib is being smeared. Um, 
And then I went through how, you know, people may not like the idea that Israel is an apartheid state, but unfortunately, apartheid is not about feelings, it's about facts. And then I went through uh, all the, the reasons that Israel is an apartheid state. And I was very thorough and careful because, you know, there are so many organizations out there that would love nothing more than to be able to discredit someone who's criticizing Israel. So I quoted the UN, I quoted the International Criminal Court, I d quoted what makes apartheid a crime, because it actually is a crime according to international law. I quoted Israeli law, that makes it clear that it is apartheid. Uh, I cited all these human rights organizations. I, I quoted B'Tselem, which is an Israeli human rights organization. Then I quoted a bunch of Israeli officials, including uh, prime ministers, who said, either said that Israel was an apartheid state or warned it was going to be an apartheid state if the two-state solution didn't work, which obviously it's not been working. And then I quoted South Africans, certain South African luminaries, because, of course, they lived under apartheid. So Desmond Tutu, Nelson Mandela, and then a foreign affairs minister in South Africa who had just spoken at the United Nations General Assembly. And I pointed out also that I, as a Jew who comes from New York City. I'm like fourth generation New York City or third generation New York City, I guess. And then my family before that was from Eastern Europe. And I could move to Israel today and get a job. I could build a home. I could move around. And so could Jonathan Greenblatt. And so could Jake Tapper. And someone like Rashida Tlaib couldn't even go to her family home in what's now Israel. Right. And, and so before we get to the several day uh, long saga that ended with your kind of shock firing, uh, Bronco, can you tell us a little bit about the the company that that bought uh, Nexstar, the company that bought the Hill last summer, and in in particular, there's a, a I was surprised to read in your re reporting, there's a particular uh, executive there uh, who has a history that kind of directly bears on on this question. Yeah, Nexstar uh, is one of these massive media conglomerates, uh, similar to Sinclair Broadcast Group, that is buying up local media outlets, uh, particularly local TV news all over the country, you know, basically to try and get as much of that market share as possible. One thing that I found was that, you know, uh, I think a month before this happened, there was an investment firm that in invested, I think they bought 6,000 shares, 6,100 shares in Nexstar to a tune of about a million dollars. Uh, and they're based in Tel Aviv. Now, whether that means that this is to do with, uh, with what happened to Katie, I don't know. But, you know, another concerning thing, as you mentioned, Ryan, was this hiring of, of a guy called Jake Novak. Um, to be the, I think, the deputy editor uh, of its um, kind of cable news arm. And Jake Novak, he was a, he's a, he's a uh, very long-serving journalist. He's worked for a whole host of outlets, including C CNBC as a columnist. He uh, also, just before joining the Nickstar family, happened to uh, have spent about a year and a half at the uh, Israeli Consulate General in New York uh, doing media communications. Now, I'm not sure exactly what he was doing, but given some of his other activities, I can guess, because uh, six days before he was hired by Nexstar in, uh, in, in August, he did this seminar, and you can find the seminar, it's, it's, it's up on Vimeo, which is all about combating kind of negative media coverage and perceptions of Israel. 
and and you know strategies for doing so. And uh, you know apparently this had been uh, based on a talk that he had done back in 2016, where during the war then he he sort of was telling people you know this is how you sort of combat some of the some of the unhelpful messaging in the in the press and otherwise um, about what Israel's doing. And this was sort of an updating of it. And besides that, I mean he's he's quite a colorful character. I mean for number one. He's written a piece, you know, uh, the, the, during the Trump administration, basically saying it's great that the Trump administration has given up on the two-state solution. It's, it's actually great that Israel is building these illegal settlements on what should be the land that would make up a Palestinian state in a two-state solution. And in fact, this is great because it will lead to more peace and, and, and more uh, prosperity for both Israelis and Palestinians. Now, I mean, even if you take away the, the perversity of arguing that, that you know, uh, it's actually good for a country to, to basically uh, steal uh, another people's land, can anyone with a straight face really say, having seen some of the events of the past few years, we've seen these these uh, clashes between uh, Palestinians and Israelis erupt into, into you know, these horrific bombings of uh, the Palestinian territories, that it has led to peace and stability. I mean, it's, it's absurd, but I think it shows you the kind of uh, worldview that, that underwrites a lot of what Novak does. Another part of the Novak story, and this is you know, one of the more bizarre aspects of this whole thing, is that during the, the Matt Gates underage sex controversy, where he was alleged to have slept with an underage uh, girl, and then there were people uh, using that to extort money out of his wealthy father, um, in the middle of all this, Novak messages the uh, the, the the creator of Dilbert, uh, and he says, and, and it doesn't. There's no real explanation in the public record why. Um, you know, he himself says, I have no idea why he got in contact with me, but he says basically, well, you know, the, uh, this is all too bad because it's it's kind of undermining my efforts to to get money so that I can pay this commando team unit that was just standing on standby, waiting to, to get the money so they can go rescue this uh, US hostage in Iran. You know, so this is a tapestry of pretty, pretty wild stuff. But to me, what it suggests is that, you know, I can't say that that is the reason that, that what happened to Katie uh, happened, but it does suggest some sort of editorial tilt among Nickstar. Uh, that that may be pushing in a more pro-Israel direction, which wouldn't be surprising. I mean, you know, in the in the U.S. political system, this is this is pretty rife. No, I was going to say it suggests a tilt in a way that you just couldn't imagine if you try to mirror mirror it and say and imagine a Palestinian American in that same position who has some of the same ties. That's who's who say uh, you know gets caught messaging somebody saying that oh this is too bad because I was trying to shake down money for a Hamas commando operation or like, you know, like you, it, it's so absurd. It's, it's so far out of what's even within the realm of possibility, but it, but in our current political ecosystem, there is a place for people with views uh, like his. And Katie, you've talked about that one of the, and before we get back into the narrative here, one of the disturbing elements of this to you mm. was that you felt like it was playing directly into some of the most insidious anti-Semitic tropes. Yeah, it's really frustrating as a Jew. And even, you know, I have to admit, it's like I'm not even, I always go back and forth between how much to say as a Jew because I I think it's useful to show that people who are Jewish are critical of Israel for a couple reasons. It's useful because we need to show that 
Jews are not a monolith and Jews are not represented by APEC and the Anti-Defamation League. But it also is like, you should be able to criticize Israel even if you're not Jewish. But I do get frustrated because there's, first of all, there's so much anti-Semitism out there and focusing on kind of exclusively as, as the ADL does, seems to do, on criticism of Israel, conflating criticism of Israel with anti-Semitism is, ironically enough, an anti-Semitic trope in itself because it kind of conflates being a Jew with being a Zionist. There's a long history of Jews taking various positions on Zionism. They're anti-Zionist Jews. There, there was a big like split within the Jewish community over this. There still is. Some Jews are for two states, some are for one state. But it does really kind of make it look like, you know, you can't, well, first of all, you, it, it exposes how Israel still is a third rail, but I'm very uncomfortable with the idea. It kind of lends itself to this idea that Jews run the media, which is not right. really, I mean, right. the truth is like powerful interests representing various, the way you get out of that and, and you, you look at it and say, well, no, that's not true. The truth is that places like APAC and the Anti-Defamation League, which represent certain interests, have a lot of sway, but they, once you break apart being Jewish from being a member of or supporter of the ADL or APAC, then you realize that we're not a monolith. So it's not anti-Semitic to point out that there, that there is an Israel lobby. Another way to feel better about the Israel lobby is that it's not uh, all Jewish. Mm-hmm. You know, if you look at the numbers, like the mo- most Israel zealots are the ones who want us Jews to go back there and like, I guess 400 of us will be saved. The rest will burn in eternal damnation, um, according to the rapture prediction, I believe. But it is really frustrating. And it's it's uncomfortable to talk about. Like even right now, I'm like worried about people taking my words out of context. And I'm Jewish. So that gives me somewhat more license, but not a lot, as we saw. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, people, if you are not Jewish, and especially if you're Arab or Arab American, Palestinian, Palestinian American, you're just like, you're so quickly labeled as an anti-Semite. I at least get self-loathing Jew. Although some people are just calling me an anti-Semite anyway. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I think it's interesting how this stuff unfolds. And so late, so later that day, you realize that your post isn't up. Yeah, so I'm I'm kind of warned by the producers, and I want to say, and I hope this doesn't get them in trouble, but they were on the right side of history and the right side of this issue. They were trying to come up with a way, I think, to get the radar out there. Not, you know, I mean, I shouldn't say that. I don't want to get them in trouble. Like, not behind anyone's back, but I think they were advocating. Well, that's their their job is to produce content. Yeah, yeah they were like, advocating for releasing yeah. the the radar. So so I get a call on my way out, and. I was told, and the producer was like, I want you to hear from me that we're not, the higher-ups saw your radar and we're not releasing it. They don't want us to release it. 
And then she explained that there was a new policy of which she had not been aware that was basically that the Hill was not doing op-eds, written or video op-eds on Israel. But she did tell me, this. she did distinguish between op-eds and segments. So meaning like segments are, are things that they're when the hosts have a conversation, have conversations with each other. Right, you're just presenting that you're presenting some news. Yeah, or I'm a se- I can be a seg- like when I'm on as a guest, right. that's a segment also, right? So that was my understanding that like it was something that could be talked about uh, by guests, but not could not make up the radar, the straight to cam uh, op ed that are done. Did you ever speak to then any higher ups at the Hill? Uh, no, not until I, so we were going back and forth and then I, I did speak to higher ups of the Hill. One of them called me, told me, I should also, I also want to add that I had shot a, it's not like I wasn't, it's not, the Hill did not dislike me. We had, I had pitched them a show, a lefty version of The View. Uh, no one steal that, guys <laughs> out there. Uh, that's my show. But I had pitched them a lefty version of The View with Brianna Joy Gray, um, also, uh, so we had shot that. We had shot the, a pilot for that. Uh, it was me, Bree, Rania Kalik, and Abby Martin. We even released like one segment from it, and it did really well numbers-wise. So Bob Cusack calls me, tells me we're not, he's not, says he's not going to release it. And he's the editor-in-chief of The Hill. The editor-in-chief of The Hill, yeah. Says like, pr- makes it look like, you know, them's the, them's the breaks. Like, we don't accept all pitches. But the thing is, as you pointed out in your piece, Ryan, this isn't like a pitch process. Like hosts are just given full license to deliver a monologue. And as you've pointed out, and you would know this better than I would because you've done so many, you just send the monologue, they put it into the teleprompter and you're off to the races. So after I spoke to him, I asked the producers again, I was like, okay, so can I do this for my segment tomorrow? In other words, like when I come on as a guest, not as a host, but when I come on as a guest, can I talk about this? And they were like, uh, you know, this person, a next star person should have emailed you. And I checked my email and that's when I got a message that was like, hi, Katie, just wanted to let you know uh, we won't be needing you to, you know, do your radar tomorrow morning. Please send us all unpaid invoices and best of luck. And I was just, I was really shocked. Like, I think a lot of people think, some people are saying like, oh, Katie did this to to get attention, or she knew she'd get fired over this. No. Like, I'm not an idiot who just out of the gates thought that my first thing was going to be about Israel-Palestine and saying Israel's an apartheid state. Now, it is an apartheid state, and it's also shouldn't be controversial to say that, but it is because of the world in which we live. But I had done so many segments on Israel. They did one where I think the headline was like, Israel lied, because I was talking about how they tried to cover up the uh, killing of uh, Shireen Abu Akhle yeah. and how they pretended it was like they su- they submitted footage of some Palestinian guy shooting an a- in an alley. And then, of course, like Bet Salem, among, among others, proved how that would have been physically impossible from that alley to like shoot a bullet that killed Shireen Abu Akhle. This was not some attention getting like stunt. This was not like, I'm going to go out with a bang. I'm going to, you know, become that journalist who refused to be silent over the Israeli-Palestine conflict. I mean, that that's what happened, but that wasn't my intention. This was not a PR stunt. This was really, I really did not think. Like, I thought it would raise eyebrows. I thought maybe people, it, like, people would complain because I had done another segment that some right-wing 
pro-Israel group wrote a really catchy headline like, what the hill? <laughs> and it was critical of me for a segment that I'd done on the, at the hill. So I thought that would happen because that always happens when you talk about Israel. But I, I was shocked when I, when I got that email. Um, and, you know, I, I do think that some, some people are like, oh, well, of course you were going to get fired over that. That really was not my, I was not trying to martyr myself or make a statement. I wanted to do that segment, I mean, to do that radar, that monologue. And uh, again, I had, I had, as a guest, been given total freedom to talk about whatever I want. I mean, I would, that I would suggest things. Sometimes they would say, no, we'd rather do this, you know. But in general, I was always able to, no one had ever been like, we don't want to do Israel. Right. And I had done it on a number of occasions. And Bronco, I, I got a decline to comment uh, from Nextstar when I reached out to them for their, their side on this. Did you get any... Have you gotten any uh, reaction from, from Nexstar? No, none. Uh, none. None from the Hill either. None from the Hill, right. But, you know, I mean, to me, it's... No, uh, 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 to me, it's, uh, it's... it's One of the things that struck me about Kay's story is that it's completely contrary to the to the whole spirit of the show. I mean, you know, I used to... I watched a show when it was Crystal and Saga. I watched a show in, in the iteration that you were on, uh, Ryan. I, I watch it still uh, every now and then in, in its current iteration. You know, the whole point, as, as you guys know, is that people on that show talk about topics and take positions on topics that are taboo in the rest of the media. You know, this is the one place where you can sort of get away from the, the stifling straitjacket of, of establishment thinking and, and kind of, you know, hear alternative viewpoints and hear uh, different perspectives on, on things. And, uh, but apparently, apparently not for Israel. And I found the, the claims by, um, by, by Cusack uh, just not very convincing that the idea that, that the Hill doesn't cover foreign policy and that, you know, it's only domestic politics. I mean, n- number one, that, you know, the, as Katie pointed out, that's just not true. But even in the past week, you know, there's been segments covering the Brazilian election, the Italian election, you know, the, the hot mic comment that was caught, the South Korean president, um, and a host of other stuff. So it, it, it's not particularly convincing. But also, on top of that, I mean, this does have a, a domestic political angle right. um, because it's very much about, it's part of the this kind of intra-party warfare in the Democratic Party where you have the more establishment-friendly and, 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 and more Israel-friendly parts of the party who, who you know, periodically use uh, this as a wedge issue to attack some of the more the progressive insurgent parts of the party. Um, and, you know, one of the things that's been, uh, I think, forgotten in, in all of this, uh, and I think really has to be stressed, is the reason why Tlaib got this pushback, the reason that this Fuhrer began over it, over, over what she said, is, is not just the, the stuff she said about Israel being an apartheid state, but she was specifically calling out the fact that the U.S. government hadn't done anything about the fact that a Palestinian-American journalist had been killed by, by a state that is meant to be an ally of the United States, and the government was doing absolutely nothing, which is unbelievable and, and would be completely unacceptable if it was any other government other than Israel. And I think, you know, what we saw was a very, a, a very, very clever and very successful way to kind of divert attention from that issue and to turn it into, well, now the controversy is going to be about is Rashid Tlaib anti-Semitic and, and you know, uh, does Israel have a right to exist, which, of course, is not right. what the original um, uh, point that even she was even talking about was. Yeah. And on the point of the show being a place where, you know, you can kind of push the boundaries. I was thinking back and in the in the year and a half 
that I was there, there was only one other radar that actually did get held up and it got held up for a couple hours and, and some executives, I think this was before Nexstar uh, bought the Hill. So back when it was an independent media outlet and that was on Uyghur genocide. And it was my former colleague, uh, Kim Iverson was making the argument that yes, there were abuses, there are abuses and it's okay to be concerned about abuses, but it's kind of state department propaganda to call it genocide or to call it even a cultural genocide. And it led to a really heated debate actually that was between, it pitted Emily Jashinsky and I on the same side, rarely, you know, cause she's usually on the right and I'm on the left, but both her and I were arguing and argued with her for a, a long time over this, o- over her points. And they ultimately decided to post it, which I thought was the right decision because yeah. there was pushback. There was, it was, it was an argument that was, that was hashed out. And I think these are things, you know, it's, it's good to just hash these out. I don't, I don't have to agree with every single word that said, that said on the show. So to think that that's okay, but this is not, I think is kind of revealing about, you know, where the, where, where these lines are, are drawn, Katie. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think that's true. I think that the fact that they would be open to airing a debate on Uyghur genocide, but not one that's about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, or I should say the Israeli occupation, is telling. Because obviously this is a third rail. Yeah, you'd have the same human rights organizations in general lining up, but on opposite sides. Like on the on the one, you know, they are, Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, have been right. extraordinarily critical of Chinese policy in in uh, Western China. Uh, and also extraordinarily critical of, of Israeli policy. But so while they're consistent, the the show and, and not to pick on the show in particular, I think it represents a, a kind of a, a broader kind of tightening of, of the discourse. And, and, and Bronco, I'm on that point. I'm curious what the response has been to your story, because it it slots into in, in kind of a perpendicular way into the discussions that we're always having around uh, can- cancel culture and free speech and censorship. Uh, if, if this, if, if Katie had been talking about anything else uh, and had been censored in this way, I think we probably have a, a three or four day kind of national conversation going on on social media. And not to say that there wasn't a significant amount of t- attention to this, but it wasn't the kind of story that it would have been if uh, somebody else had been canceled for something else. But so, but as a, as an author of one of these pieces, what what was your sense of the kind of attention that was that was paid to it compared to what you know what what could have been? I had to say it was mostly positive, um, and that might just be. I mean, look, Jacobin is a as a, a socialist magazine. The people who read it are most likely going to be people who are on the left in some way, um, and so they probably agree with the premise. But yeah, I mean, you're right. I I have not. I don't think Katie has either. As she she said in the in a, in a Daily Beast piece uh, that, that that she's written gotten any sort of outreach from the people who, in the uh, the the political and media landscape, use cancel culture and censorship as a kind of wedge issue for uh, driving their own politics. Um, you know, and, and I think that shows how how cynical the, this whole thing is. You know, I'm mean, in the same way. You know, it, it wasn't that long ago uh, when the, the Queen died. I wrote this piece about. You know, just just doing a little overview of some of the uh, arrests that were happening in the UK over Republican and anti-monarchist protesters and and, and, and language being used, and, and again, very little pushback from the usual kind of uh, quarters that 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 
are obsessed with cancel culture um, and yet you know seem to give a free pass to censorship and cancellation um, when it comes to uh, certain topics that they that they agree with you know my position has always been and i think the sensible position for anyone is that whatever your political beliefs are whatever you are on the political spectrum the the best thing for everyone is to uphold norms of free speech uh, uh, opposing censorship and to, to oppose any sort of measure that would foreclose on our ability to, to, to speak freely and to, to have open conversations about, about topics, because that's the best way to guarantee that everyone is able to speak and isn't censored. And I think that's the position we should take. You know, unfortunately, I think the way that this uh, discourse happens um, in the United States in particular, but not just in the United States, this issue of free speech is used by, by people when it's convenient for them, but then they're very happy to support uh, censorship and just one as one example you know I mean Barry Weiss yeah uh, for instance you know, she was a, a columnist for for the New York Times I believe and you know she's a general kind of figure in the media um, yeah, she signed the Harper's letter uh, she's someone who has really taken up this torch of, of, of cancel culture made it almost part of a personal brand and of course during uh, her college days she was most famous for trying to get professors who were uh, considered massage. too critical of Israel too positive towards the Palestinian cause fired and i think that that is just a perfect encapsulation of the 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 double standard and the way that this uh issue is i think cynically used by by people who don't really care about uh freedom of speech hey katie what kind of reaction have have you gotten positive a lot of people are you know speaking out supporting me and uh which is great and then i guess the, the other silver lining is that i did i really want to make sure that the video got out there so i made it with an actually independent media organization, Breakthrough News. So you can find the video on YouTube, at youtube.com slash the Katie Halper Show. You can also find it at youtube.com slash Breakthrough News. So we still made the op-ed. And uh, there's been a lot of really positive response to the both the video and also the, you know, the, my, the position that I took, which was <laughs> getting fired, I guess. But I mean, for, I guess, right. criticizing Israel. Yeah. Right. Well, we'll and we'll also play it for folks, um, folks now. Um, and, but uh, Katie and um, Bronco, I really appreciate you guys uh, both joining us. Thanks. And make sure, yeah, Bronco's piece is really good. Yeah. Well done. It's really good. Well, so is Ryan's. Let me. Let me uh, yeah. <laughs> no, thanks. Uh, thanks for having us on. Thanks. You got it. Deconstructed is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept. Our producer is Zach Young. Laura Flynn is our supervising producer. The show was mixed by William Stanton. Our theme music was composed by Bart Warshaw. Roger Hodge is The Intercept's editor-in-chief. And I'm Ryan Grimm, D.C. Bureau Chief of The Intercept. If you'd like to support our work, go to theintercept.com slash give. Your donation, no matter what the amount, makes a real difference. If you enjoy this podcast, be sure to also check out Intercepted as well as Murderville, which is now in its second season. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the show so you can hear it every week. And please do leave us a rating or a review. It helps people find the show. If you want to give us additional feedback, email us at podcasts at theintercept.com. Thanks so much. And now, as I mentioned earlier, here is Katie Halper's Radar editorial in its entirety. The following monologue is something that I wrote, delivered, and recorded at the Hill. It was then censored, and I was then canceled and fired. Representative Rashida Tlaib has been condemned by some over comments she made about Israel. Here's CNN's Jake Tapper reporting on what the Michigan Democrats said and the response it prompted. 
Democratic Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib of Michigan facing criticism today from what several of her Jewish colleagues have deemed anti-Semitic comments. Here's what Tlaib, the first Palestinian-American woman to serve in Congress, said at a virtual event yesterday. I want you all to know that among progressives, it has become clear that you cannot claim to hold progressive values, yet back Israel's apartheid government, and we will continue to push back and not accept this idea that you are progressive, progressive except for Palestine any longer. The CEO of the Anti-Defamation League, Jonathan Greenblatt, slammed the comments saying that Israel does not have an apartheid government and said that she should not be imposing a, quote, litmus test in a tweet saying, quote, Tlaib tells American Jews that they need to pass an anti-Zionist litmus test to participate in progressive space. Some of Tlaib's Jewish colleagues in Congress agreed. Florida Congresswoman Debbie Wasserman Schultz called her comments, quote, outrageous and, quote, nothing short of anti-Semitic. Debbie Wasserman Schultz is right. It is outrageous. It's outrageous that Rashida Tlaib is getting attacked. Tlaib is merely stating that Israel is an apartheid state and that people who claim to have progressive values cannot support an apartheid state. No matter how loose a definition of progressive we use, it certainly excludes supporting a racist apartheid system. What's outrageous is attacking Tlaib for pointing out that progressive except for Palestine is an intrinsically contradictory position. What's also outrageous is that the Anti-Defamation League's Jonathan Greenblatt would claim that Israel is not an apartheid government. What's outrageous is that Jake Tapper would accept Greenblatt's judgment as the truth and not propaganda that needed to be pushed back against. I understand that Greenblatt and perhaps Tapper feel like Israel is not an apartheid state, but unfortunately for them, apartheid isn't about your feelings. It's about facts. In 1973, the UN defined the crime of apartheid as any inhuman acts committed for the purpose of establishing and maintaining domination by one racial group of persons over any other racial group of persons and systematically oppressing them. In 1998, the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court defined apartheid as inhuman acts of a character that are committed in the context of an institutionalized regime of systematic oppression and domination by one racial group over any other racial group or groups and committed with the intention of maintaining that regime. These inhuman acts include, among others, infliction upon the members of a racial group or groups of serious bodily or mental harm by the infringement of their freedom or dignity or by subjecting them to torture or to cruel, inhuman, or degrading treatment or punishment, by arbitrary arrest and illegal imprisonment of the members of a racial group or groups, any legislative measures and other measures calculated to prevent a racial group or groups from participation in the political, social, economic, and cultural life of the country, and the deliberate creation of conditions preventing the full development of such a group or groups. In particular, by denying to members of a racial group or groups basic human rights and freedoms, including the right to leave and to return to their country, the right to a nationality, the right to freedom of movement and residence, the right to freedom of opinion and expression, and the right to freedom of peaceful assembly and association. I'd encourage Jake Tapper to look this up sometime. Here are just a few examples of Israel's apartheid policies. The law of return of 1950 allows any Jew, which means anyone with one Jewish grandparent, the right to return to Israel, the right to move to Israel and automatically become citizens of Israel. It gives their spouses that right too, even if they're not Jewish, though if they're Palestinian, that's another issue entirely. Palestinians, of course, lack that right. The Israeli Citizenship Law of 1952 deprived Palestinian refugees and their descendants of legal status, the right to return, and all other rights in their homeland. It also defined Palestinians present in Israel as Israeli citizens without a nationality and group rights. 
These laws together obviously fit into the International Criminal Court's apartheid criteria. More recently, the nation-state law established that the fulfillment of the right of national self-determination in the state of Israel is unique to the Jewish people. It demoted Arabic from an official language to a language with special status. It also stipulated the state views Jewish settlement as a national value and will labor to encourage and promote its establishment and development. These are just some of the reasons that human rights organizations have declared Israel an apartheid state. Al-Haq, Al-Mezin Center for Human Rights, Adala, the Legal Center for Arab Minority Rights in Israel, Adamir, Prisoner Support and Human Rights Association, Human Rights Watch, and Amnesty International have all documented Israeli apartheid policies. Israel's own human rights organization, B'Tselem, has declared, the Israeli regime enacts an apartheid regime. B'Tselem divides the way Israeli apartheid works into four areas. Land. Israel works to Judaize the entire area, treating land as a resource chiefly meant to benefit the Jewish population. Since 1948, Israel has taken over 90% of the land within the Green Line and built hundreds of communities for the Jewish population. Citizenship. Jews living anywhere in the world, their children and grandchildren and their spouses are entitled to Israeli citizenship. In contrast, Palestinians cannot immigrate to Israeli-controlled areas even if they, their parents, or their grandparents were born and lived there. Israel makes it difficult for Palestinians who live in one of the units it controls to obtain status in another and has enacted legislation that prohibits granting Palestinians who marry Israelis status within the Green Line. Freedom of movement. Israeli citizens enjoy freedom of movement in the entire area controlled by Israel and may enter and leave the country freely. Palestinian subjects, on the other hand, require a special Israeli-issued permit to travel between the units and sometimes inside them, and exit abroad also requires Israeli approval. Political participation. Palestinian citizens of Israel may vote and run for office, but leading politicians consistently undermine the legitimacy of Palestinian political representatives. The roughly 5 million Palestinians who live in the occupied territories, including East Jerusalem, cannot participate in the political system that governs their lives and determines their future. I was born in New York City. My great-grandparents and the family before them were from Eastern Europe. I could move to Israel today, buy a house, get a job, travel around with no problem. So could Jake Tapper and Jonathan Greenblatt. But a Palestinian like Rashida Tlaib can't even visit her family home in what is now Israel. This demographic tension is recognized by Israeli officials and politicians who have described their own country as an apartheid state. Former Attorney General Michael Ben-Yair wrote in 2002, We established an apartheid regime in the occupied territories immediately following their capture. That oppressive regime exists to this day. Zahava Galon, former chair of Israel's Meretz Party, said in 2006, Israel was relegated to the level of an apartheid state. In 2007, Israel's former education minister, Shulamit Aloni, wrote, The state of Israel practices its own quite violent form of apartheid with the native Palestinian population. In 2008, former environment minister Yossi Sarid said, What acts like apartheid is run like apartheid and harasses like apartheid is not a duck, it is apartheid. In 2015, former Mossad chief Meir Dagan said, President Benjamin Netanyahu's policies are leading to either a binational state or an apartheid state. Even Israel's prime ministers have used the A-word. In a recently published 1976 interview, assassinated Israeli prime minister Yitzhak Rabin said, If we don't want to get to apartheid, I don't think it's possible to contain over the long term a million and a half more Arabs inside a Jewish state. 
In 2007, yet another prime minister, who Merritt warned, if the day comes when the two-state solution collapses and we face a South African-style struggle for equal voting rights, then as soon as that happens, the state of Israel is finished. Prime Minister Ehud Barak said in 2010, as long as in this territory west of the Jordan River, there is only one political entity called Israel, it is going to be either non-Jewish or non-democratic. If this block of millions of Palestinians cannot vote, that will be an apartheid state. But there is no other standard more universally respected in defining apartheid, not the UN, not the international criminal courts, not human rights organizations, not Israeli prime ministers, than the people of South Africa who lived under the system of apartheid. After all, apartheid is an Afrikaans word. It means apartness. It was the official policy in South Africa from 1948 to 1994, allowing white South Africans in the minority to rule over and discriminate against the vast majority of black South Africans. The definitions from the United Nations and the International Criminal Court come out of their experiences. In 1997, Nelson Mandela said, the UN took a strong stand against apartheid and over the years an international consensus was built, which helped to bring an end to this iniquitous system. But we know too well that our freedom is incomplete without the freedom of the Palestinians. In 2013, Desmond Tutu recalled being struck by the similarities between what he experienced in apartheid South Africa and what he observed in Israel. I have visited the occupied Palestinian territories and have witnessed the humiliation of Palestinians at Israeli military checkpoints. The inhumanity that won't let ambulances reach the injured Farmers tend their land or children attend school. This treatment is familiar to me and the many black South Africans who were corralled and harassed by the security forces of the apartheid government. Listen to South Africa's Minister for International Relations, Naledi Pandor, addressing the United States General Assembly just last week. While we work to address contemporary conflicts, we should not ignore long-standing conflicts, such as that of the people of Palestine, which has been on the United Nations agenda throughout the seven decades of existence of this organization. We cannot ignore the words of the former Israeli negotiator at the Oslo talks, Daniel Levy, who addressed the UN Security Council recently and referred to the increasingly weighty body of scholarly, legal, and public opinion that has designated Israel to be perpetrating apartheid in the territories under its control. To my fellow Jews, to my friends in the Democratic Party who want to support Israel and think of themselves as progressive, it's important to look at what Israeli law today does, what the lived experiences of Palestinians today means as defined under international law and what our friends from South Africa have long pointed out. But we should not stop there. South Africans didn't just define apartheid, they dismantled it. Instead of attacking Rashida Tlaib for her candor, her critics should ask themselves how Israeli apartheid could be dismantled. What would a post-apartheid country look like? Lashana Tova. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. 
but what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.